what did you eat for breakfast? Uh, that is a question I'm yet to answer. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 145. This episode is sponsored by Ignite Your Music Career. You may remember in episode 90, I chatted to Craig Dodge about sync licensing and how he makes a living through writing music for TV, video games, and film. Musicians all over the world subscribe to Ignite Your Music Career and earn more royalties, more upfront sync fees, and more recurring revenue from their music. Whether you're a composer, singer-songwriter, band, beatmaker, or instrumentalist, your music can be earning you more money. Internationally acclaimed composer, musician, and music educator Craig Dodge has licensed his music in more than 1,000 TV show episodes, films, video games, and ads all over the world, and he will show you how you can too. Ignite gives you the information you need in a simple, accessible format, and you learn at your own pace. For just $6 a month, you get a video lesson each week on topics related to music licensing, from writing techniques to how to find your markets, and everything in between. You also get tools and activities to build the skills you need to be successful, and each lesson includes a royalty-free sound pack to download and use in your own music. The key to success in the music business today is to diversify your sources of revenue. Ignite will show you how. For more information or to subscribe to Ignite, visit the website at taris-studios.com or click the link on musiconyourownterms.com. I discovered this week's guest on YouTube while searching for videos of one of the amps I own, really appreciating the content he's putting out, as well as our common love for the band King's X. Leon Todd is a guitar player, YouTuber, and teacher from Perth, Australia, who tours with his band Ragdoll, teaches clinics at guitar festivals, and has a ton of great information on guitar gear, most notably the Fractal Axe Effects. We discuss Leon's history, how he's built his YouTube channel, as well as his band's following around the world, including saving for trips to the US and taking every opportunity no matter what the odds they have faced as a band. Finally, Leon talks about the old adage of success is not what you know, but who you know, from his perspective, including how he met his wife and how he got to hang out and eat dinner with Doug Pinnock from King's X. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support, I'd be really grateful if you would consider signing up for the mailing list to stay in the loop with everything going on with the show. Just head over to musiconyourownterms.com and click the link. While you're there, you can also visit the store and grab some merch, or just buy me a coffee and help out with the running costs of the show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode. Today I'm hanging out with Leon Todd, and I'll let him describe what he does. So welcome and how are you doing? Yeah, very good, thanks. I make guitar noises mm -hmm. and I talk about myself a lot. So that's probably the most succinct summary of, I think what I do and what most people on the internet know about what I do. 
So yeah, so YouTuber, you're in a band called Ragdoll. Correct. You teach. The first question is, who inspired you to play guitar? It's a very straightforward answer in some ways. And uh, when you kind of dive into it, it's not very straightforward. But I grew up just kind of always assuming guitars were around because my dad played guitar. Uh, not only did he play guitar, he built guitars as well. So there's a video of me when I'm about three years old careening about the house with a little quarter-sized Gibson replica, bossing all my cousins around, telling them that, no, you, you got to be the bass player and you got to be the drummer and we're going to do this concert. And <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I, I re-watched that video, kind of dug it up recently, and it, it all made sense. So that's probably the real reason that I was just kind of surrounded by this stuff from a very young age. But when I was maybe 12, 13, 14, I think like a lot of people my age really got into video games and one of the biggest video games would have been like tony hawk's pro skater so then we all decided we wanted to get into skateboarding and then you have the i guess the ecosystem around skateboarding with a lot of you know rock and punk and metal music that just kind of came hand in hand with that so that's probably the stuff that really got me into music mm. and then it was that oh well i got a guitar kicking around and i think i like music and kind of hurts a little less than all the times I fall on concrete skateboarding. So, <laughs> yeah, when I was about 14 or 15, that's very much uh, how I I feel like I picked up a guitar one day and I haven't put it back down yet. Nice. Yeah, so let's talk about Ragdoll. I, I could, I've ascertained you've kind of been around for about 10 years. Is that right? Yeah, probably. Give or take? Give or take, yeah. I uh, It's one of those things where I'll probably be saying we've been around for 10 years for the next seven or eight years. But... I first met our drummer Cam in 2006 and yeah, kind of the band that I joined that he was in eventually morphed into what's now Ragdoll. And we've had, you know, a few different, I guess, lineups, you would say, while we were kind of playing around with the sound that we wanted to mm. have maybe the first five or six years that he and I played together. You know, we had different people come in and out of the band, but it would have been, yeah, probably about 10 years ago that we settled on a three-piece lineup so it's myself i you know make guitar noises like i said and our singer ryan rafferty who plays bass as well so mm -hmm. classic power trio someone's got to do two things and like i was saying our drummer cam who uh, i've known I've, and probably is you know the person i've known who plays music for the longest amount of time fantastic yeah so you've got that kind of you know rock and roll 80s influenced and then obviously they've come up before on the podcast king's x the band that either you love them or you don't know about them so <laughs> perfect so yeah i mean that's where we're gonna start i think is is just i i just i think i just watched a video about uh where you gone into king's x like how fortunate to have family members that said hey listen to this and it happens to be king's x exactly my uncle also plays music he and my dad actually played in a couple of bands together back in the day and he was the the classic uncle that is, you know, he just was an uncle. That's what uncles are meant to do. They're meant to show you that Van Halen is cool and King's X exists and uh. you can kind of listen to music that your mum and dad don't listen to. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, very, very fortunate. And they are definitely one of those bands where they're like, it's like a secret society. Like you said, you, you either love it or you just haven't been introduced to it just yet. So uh -huh. they're probably one of the bands, obviously being a trio with a singing bass player who do a lot of really melodic stuff, but use drop tunings, but have a kind of, I guess, classic rock 
and metal sound, but also with like a kind of pop influence that I think really provided a not. And I'm not saying that, you know, we necessarily sound like them, but they kind of provide a template. It's like, hey, if you just want to if you want to sound like all your favorite bands, you can do it. You, you don't have to just be stuck into these kind of little pigeonholes. So I think the really cool thing about King's X is for a lot of people, you know, they describe them as the Beatles meet Black Sabbath. And, you know, a lot of people are influenced by both of those bands, but very few people would set out to put together a band that sounds like those two bands together. So for us, that was a good kind of template of like, hey, we like music from the 70s and the 80s, and we like all the kind of stuff from, you know, I guess the 90s and the post-grunge era and a lot of modern stuff and a lot of, you know, just kind of eclectic music where it's like, okay, cool. Well, it's it's all just music, you know, and mm-hmm. you're probably going to sound like you sound anyway. So just don't hold back with with wanting to, yeah, you want to have a bridge of a song that sounds a little bit more like a pop song, do it. Who cares? Right, for sure. So you, you've actually come over to the States. I'm jumping around a little bit. but None. All good. Um, you, you've toured the States a couple of times. I mean, I know a lot of bands from Australia kind of, it's limiting just because of the cost, getting gear over and the plane tickets and stuff. Like, how, how have you gone about that? Are you getting label support or is, is it, like, completely self-funded? Like, how, how are you working that? So early on when we started the band, we started doing a lot of, uh, you know, we call them like country shows, but it's not us playing country music. We're just playing in places that aren't the city. So we're in Western Australia, which has one kind of big city, Perth, where the majority of people live. And then you have this state that is five times the size of Texas mm-hmm. and has very, very few people in it. So you have a lot of these towns with, you know, some will have a few thousand people. I think maybe the biggest one has about 50 or 60,000 people. Uh, and, you know, they're all somewhere within that like five to six hour driving radius. So we, when we started off and it was kind of a good way to, I guess, learn our craft as a band, we would go and play shows where we primarily weren't, we weren't playing in the city. So we were playing out of town and we were mostly doing covers and we were mostly doing three or four hour shows. So we were playing a lot and we were, you know, we were earning money from those shows and we were just kind of squirreling away Mm. all that money so that we could, you know, if the, you know, it was always a pipe dream, you know, if the opportunity comes up where, you know, we, we get a slot somewhere on, you know, a gig in the, in the US, we can go and do it and we don't have to worry about the financial aspect of it. And in 2012, yeah, we got asked to go and play a side stage of a festival called Rocklahoma mm-hmm. in the US. And, you know, st- we, we got, the invite in maybe February or March, and it was May that we were going to be over there. So that's how we initially started doing that. It was totally self-funded. We had no idea what was going on. We just kind of flew there. We didn't take any gear with us. I think once we kind of figured out that it was going to be prohibitive to ship any of our stuff over there, and that gear, relatively speaking, at the time, I think the exchange rate between the two currencies was about parity was we could actually go and buy ourselves a bunch of stuff for far less than it would cost us to ship our own gear or far less than it would cost us Mm -hmm. to hire gear and you know buying things is fun so we just kind of showed up we walked into a guitar center one day we we bought our entire backline we stuffed it into one of those kind of dodge grand caravans they have over in the states and uh yeah i think we played nine or ten shows that first time but it was mostly 
exploratory and we actually we left all our gear with a friend who was very very kind to just kind of let us stuff all our gear in his garage and the next year we were asked back to play the same festival but we kind of we, we knew what to expect this time so about nine months out we were able to start booking shows and you know figuring out logistics and all those kind of things so uh, that's still how we we do everything you know we don't have label support and we don't have a manager and we just kind of do it all ourselves uh, i think because now we have a pretty good idea of what not to do mm -hmm. that's fantastic and then i did notice that your your wife's from texas and i'm i actually i'm actually living in texas so uh how how did you meet her and i'm assuming your in-laws are now the storage facility <laughs> yes, that would be the correct assumption. That was uh, the obviously the relationship isn't uh, you know predicated on on storage facilities or anything <laughs> like that. But yeah, we met in the second year that I went over, and again, this is I think this is one of the overlooked things when you when you talk to you know there's a classic saying when you when you're young or starting out where it's a cliche. It's oh, it's not it's not what you know, it's who you know. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people interpret that as like, well, you just got to be buddies with someone who has a few million dollars and a record label. And, you know, that's that's what what they mean by who you know. When in reality, it's, it's not. It can often just be somebody who you've met while you were setting up your gear mm. at a gig and it's maybe one of the other support bands and they're just really friendly. So you become friends with someone and they invite you over for a barbecue and then you you go to their barbecue and you have a great time with them and you know you stay in touch and then they say oh hey you know you were saying at the barbecue that you know you were looking at somebody to do some photography or some film you should speak to this person and then nearly a decade later you're married to that person living in another country so mm -hmm. i think <laughs> i think that's kind of the the who you know story so uh, you know i'm sure people could figure out from that that a band we had played with a guy who lives in dallas you know we we just kind of became chummy and we would go and hang out with him and I would write to him quite often. And when we went over for that tour, yeah, it was, I was looking for someone who could do some photo some photos and some video work for us. And he suggested speaking to Elspeth who was, you know, she's from Texas and was living there and working at a music venue and doing photography and doing film stuff. And uh, that's just kind of how we met. And, you know, the, the rest is history. That's awesome. I'm I'm originally from England, so I moved to the U.S. because of my wife. There you go. How how she found living in Australia to be very very different. Obviously, being away from uh, you would understand this. You know, just being away from your family is difficult, mm -hmm. especially when you kind of feel like you're well, not just feel like you're on the other side of the world when you are on the other side of the world. Right. But I think one of the big things with Australia, and you you would know this coming from the U.K. as well, is you know just there's there's enough similarities, but there's enough differences as well. I think to to make it interesting, to make it exciting, and to make it challenging with various things. Where you know, just like it's it's Sunday morning here, and you know, if the the supermarket doesn't open for at least another hour, and it'll only stay open till five o'clock. So if you you need some milk, um, <laughs> you have to go out of your way to get that milk. Uh, whereas, you know, in the States, everything is open and yeah, it's, it's, a uh, it's just, just weird little things like that, that I think do take time to get used to, uh, here, but you know, Australia is an amazing place to live. And I definitely appreciate that more 
the the longer I stay here and the more other places that I've been lucky enough to to visit, I guess. Awesome. Let's dig into your history a little bit. You got a, a BA in science and maths, is that correct? Correct, yeah. So why did you do those? I was trolling your LinkedIn bio and it's high honors, which, you know, is pretty amazing. What prompted you to get those degrees and then go full on into music? Or was there a, like a gradual transition hmm. where you were maybe teaching? Because I know you teach guitar, but were you tutoring? I, I saw something about tutoring. So were you, was it a transition or was it like, oh, I'm just doing music and I have I have that as a backup plan? Yeah, to be to be perfectly honest, the 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 backup plan thing was not really something I ever thought about. And I think if I was going to have a backup plan, I would have just studied accounting or something like that. Something that you can just kind of easily walk into a job, showing up and saying, "Oh, hey, yeah, I um, uh, I I studied like entropy of group actions. Um, can you give me a job at your bank? Because I really, really need some money." Uh, would probably mm. just end up with a lot of people giving you a sideways look, but. I, you know, throughout school, I, I guess, so in, in Australia, they, I don't know if they use this term anymore, but I, I would be an advocate for them not using this term for a lot of reasons. But, uh, you know, when I was in like six or something like that, you know, it was, I was, I was labeled as like a gifted student because I don't know, I could kind of, kind of read books that maybe kids a few years older than me couldn't. And I was just, I just, Reading, if you're a kid, is like a superpower to me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I still see young kids, you know, I'm talking about like kids who are between maybe like under the age of eight or nine. Like if they figure out how to read pretty well, then it just seems like they just devour books and they just devour information. And I was one of those kids where, yeah, I just really got into reading and I had books about space and dinosaurs and plate tectonics and, you know, all this mind-blowing stuff that you don't hear about on play school uh so i was constantly just kind of devouring stuff like that and uh i you know i was i just consider like i could do most of my schoolwork pretty fast and pretty quickly mm. so there was definitely an element that as i you know just kind of progressed through the grades it was like oh hey you're good at this you should do some of this so that was that was kind of the it's very much the you know i guess the the norm core pathway is that like, you know, if you get good grades, then you, you should, you have to go to university. There's no, no two ways around it. The way university education works in Australia is you essentially, you know, the, the government will let you essentially take out a, not an interest-free loan, but a loan that is just only, its value only increases with inflation. So essentially you get an interest more or less a, an interest-free loan where it's, and you only have to start repaying it once you earn a certain amount of money. So mm -hmm. uh, they call that, they call that HEX here. Yep. And yeah, you just have this HEX program. So there's kind of like, you don't have to do the thing that you do in the States where it's like, okay, cool. I'm going to go and shop around for colleges and, you know, I want a degree from somewhere, but it's going to cost X amount. So I, can I get a better thing somewhere else? It's just, oh, cool. Yeah. Well, you just go to, you know, What's the university that offers what you want? So that's kind of what I did. And I really enjoyed maths and I really enjoyed physics. And I, I got a lot out of that experience from both from like an academic perspective. And I think just from a just kind of general life perspective, because it was the first time. And I think for a lot of people, universities are like this. It's the first time I was around people who were a similar age to me where I was choosing to be around them. And that choice wasn't 
a byproduct of the fact that everyone I went to school with lived in a certain, you know, their parents had chosen to live in a certain area. So that's why we all ended up at the same school, you know, that, you know, it wasn't a, I guess it wasn't just a purely like socioeconomic factor that I had people the same age around me. This was people from not only everywhere in the kind of state or city that I live in, but all around the country and people from overseas as well. So I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it. You know, I didn't do a whole lot of like overt socializing, but a lot of the people that I met in my classes, you know, I still stay in touch with a couple of them. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I think when I finished my honors, which was really, really good fun, the, the pathway is like, hey, you, again, you did pretty good at this. Like you should, you know, do you want to become an academic? Do you want to do a doctorate? And uh, right around that time, I had met the guys in the band and it was a pretty simple calculation to me. It's like, cool, I'm, you know, 21, 22 years old. You only get to be that old once. Do I try the band thing now? And then if I don't like it, when I'm 10, 20 years older, I can go back to university and do the thing I was going to do. I don't think it quite works the other way around, unfortunately. Right. So that's that was, yeah, it was just very much a, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe one of the few rational decisions I've ever made in my life. And um, I've been teaching guitar since I was about 15 or 16. And I, you know, when I was at uni, I was also tutoring the stuff that I was studying. So that kind of gave me a little bit of leeway there where it's like, well, if I'm not making a whole, whole amount of money out of the band, I can still kind of get by by teaching and tutoring. So there's, there's the long version of the story. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I noticed you've done some session work with some Australian um, singers that maybe were tied to the X Factor and an and Australian Idol. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, and again, this is, this is friend of a friend kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. One of my good family friends who for a brief period of time actually was managing Ragdoll, his wife is involved in like corporate events. So she worked with a lot of, you know, artists who were involved with, yeah, Sony and the whole X Factor kind of thing. So I I think they had somebody come out where they, they needed somebody to play like three songs on acoustic guitar. Mm. And so, yes, so they just suggested me. And then through that, through kind of word of mouth, I ended up doing, this would have been maybe 2013 through to about 2016. I just kind of became the guy that, you know, you could call two two days before and, you know, I could, I could learn three pop songs in in a day mm -hmm. and then show up on time and, you know, not smell too bad or swear too much. So I kept, I kept getting those gigs, which was, which was really fun, you know, kind of figuring out that, you know, people, the people that you see on TV are people first and foremost. And everybody that I worked through there was super professional and just like genuinely decent people to work with. So that was, that was really, really awesome. Awesome. I found you via YouTube because I was searching for, I was just searching for random, you know, videos about the amp I have, which is a Carvin V3. Awesome. And I found your channel and I actually just talked to a guy. So if you're ever in England, if you ever find yourself in the South of England, I've got a, a good friend who is a really great luthier. Awesome. Eastbourne Guitar Workshop. And he actually told me this week that you, you were one of the channels that convinced him to buy, I think it was the FM3 or what, what's just come out? The yeah. stuff. Is it the FM3? FM3 and FM9 they have, yeah. So it might have been the nine. Um, yeah, right. No, I um that's that's probably a, a not too uncommon story. I think a lot of people would know me on the internet through the 
I guess the whole fractal ecosystem. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I, I like guitar amps and I like loud noises as well. So the, one of the ways I got into doing YouTube stuff was, you know, I would, I would, I like watching YouTube. So I'd be on there, I'd be like, oh, I wonder if anyone's done a video about my amp, you know, and, you know, like a carbon V3 is maybe a bit of an underrated kind of unit, but I, I have one and, you know, I'd, I'd look up, this was before I started doing YouTube and I'd be like, I can't believe there's no videos of this thing that you might get the two minute promotional thing from, from the company that somebody had ripped off like a DVD or VHS, but nothing else. And yeah, that's kind of what got me started where I was like, well, you know, I have, I have microphones and, you know, my wife does photography and I can use her camera to on video mode. And maybe I should just mic up my guitar amp and talk about it a little bit and upload the video to YouTube. And I started doing that. And, <laughs> you know, people who, who have seen my YouTube channel know that I have a lot of stuff. So as I started posting videos and getting some feedback on it, it was, it just kind of became this interesting opportunity to like, Hey, I have all this stuff. Maybe, maybe if I just try to do one video with each thing, then that would be, that would be a fun little project. And, and then it, it has just kind of snowballed from there. So mm. yeah, I, I am in the position now where I guess having a channel, which is, I mean, I, I never even thought of doing YouTube stuff as something that you could be successful at. I just kind of went in with the intention of like, oh, well, I'll make videos about things that I like and that'll be that'll be fun. Mm -hmm. And it still is very fun to me. But now it is something that takes up, you know, a considerable portion of my time during the week. And it's something that I do make money from uh, in various ways. And there's something that kind of, I guess, justifies and offsets and fuels the fact that I like guitar stuff as well. So it's uh, it's kind of become its own little self, you know, self-perpetuating machine. Awesome. How, how, how long, you know, how many videos do you average a week and how much time, you know, during the week do you actually spend on it? So at the moment, I mean, I do a video every day. I don't know how long I can keep this up, but I've kept it up for a few years and it's been pretty interesting. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to anybody, but... I have so many different things that I'm interested in when it comes to the whole guitar space that essentially every single day of the week, I have a different, you know, I, I tend to do it weekly where like, you know, today's Sunday. So I've got a video schedule, which is just me playing some music, mm -hmm. like just me playing guitar for a few minutes. And normally I'll do like a deep dive thing with a piece of gear on Saturday and Friday I do a and a video and uh, Monday I'll do a review and Thursday, uh, it'll be a guitar lesson or something. So I do have this kind of structure around things. And I found that having a balance between longer form videos, you know, 20 to 40 minutes that people can kind of, I guess, watch like a TV show and then short and sharp, like five minute videos where it's like, hey, here's how to, you know, here's how to play this John Sykes lick or like, here's how to set up something on the Axe effects that makes your delays spin around your head has been a really good format for me. So yeah, it, I normally, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, you know, it's probably realistically between about 10 to 20 hours a week, hmm. but you know, that, that's, that's time that I'd be sitting around picking my nose otherwise. So it kind of keeps me busy and it, it keeps me, keeps me in that cycle where it's still a, it's still a creative thing. You know, I found, hmm. I love playing in a band. Like I love playing in a band. I love playing with the guys I play with. It's just that the creative cycle with it is a little bit longer where, you know, there's 
there's songs that we worked on the first demo for when we first started the band 10 years ago that are still kind of kicking around in the background where it's we you know they didn't get finished for whatever reason or they didn't make the cut for an album or an ep but you know they're not terrible songs maybe we'll get around to finishing them and the last full-length album that we did there was we were in that situation where we needed one more song and it was sort of like hey why don't we rework this you know essentially demo recording Mm. that never made it onto anything else and it was one of those processes where like in a day went from being this crusty old idea to being a brand new thing that we could put on the end of an album but you need that that was because hey we're a song short the album's got to come out in a month we need to do this thing and yeah it's just a like the it's a slow burn it's satisfying in a different way whereas doing a video means that kind of every single day i can make something and that is something i like to do so I know you've you've had the opportunity to go to is it Axfest? Yeah. What other opportunities have come out of the channel? Oh, quite a quite a lot. I was just down at the Western Australian Guitar Festival. They did their second one this year. Mm-hmm. So I did some workshops and some clinics down at that. And when we <laughs> so the last tour we did with Ragdoll, we did an East Coast of well, actually we did an Australian tour. Uh, but it was mostly on the East Coast because that's where most of the big cities are. And that was in March. So right around the time the whole COVID thing was really kicking off. I also did a, you know, at, on the back of that, I was able to do some workshops and some teaching. And one of the really interesting things that's come up because of it is now most of the teaching I do is online. Mm-hmm. So most of my students are in the United States and the UK or over on the East Coast of Australia. And you know, it couldn't have literally couldn't have come at a better time, especially with what's happened over the last two years. So I was really, really fortunate that having a presence online meant that I could, it would have been March or April last year where I was kind of sitting around. I was like, well, I can't, I physically can't be in a room with any of my students. So all my existing students I'm teaching online, maybe I'll just put the word out that this is something that I do. And yeah, I've been able to kind of transition most of most of my teaching business over to being online relatively painlessly yeah i i basically had the same uh, experience you know even the the kid that is right around the corner from me just started teaching online and i found i actually found it a little easier because then i could set up a second camera showing my fretboard and then record the lesson so i don't have to write an email every like do this this and this i'm just like Here's the video. Go, go, go! Listen to the end of the video for your homework. Exactly. I really, I, I enjoy, I enjoy that aspect of it where there's a lot of long-standing technical issues around how to, you know, make the thirty minutes or the sixty minutes or however long it is that you're with a student make that really sustainable. So, mm. um, I have enjoyed where it's like, you know, you're on a Zoom meeting and you can just say, "Hey, hit the record button because I'm going to show you what your homework is." done or another cool thing that that i like with that is you know it's transcribing music is obviously a great way to further your musicianship so you can you can give someone some homework where it's like hey i'm going to play something you can record it and then it's your homework to transcribe it and play it back to me next time so yeah a lot of fun things like that and uh yeah the other obviously the other aspect out of it is i've i've seen I've seen us sell merch for the band in places that we haven't played before online, which is always exciting and in in just kind of different markets. So I'm kind of waiting, 
waiting with bated breath to to see you know if and when the world opens up if we'll if we'll have any opportunities to go to maybe some countries we haven't been to before and uh, do some do some really fun touring and the other obviously the other thing is i love guitar gear so getting to work with some of my favorite companies has been amazing really really great and have mm. often have them approach you because they like what you do that's great so uh this might be a bit of a rabbit hole let's go so i i really appreciate your videos because you're, you're really positive and you do have a you know a, a really nice spin on things but i i just watch your plect videos and so for for non-guitar players the plect system is basically a a super accurate system that scans your guitar and finds out where all the inaccuracies in the setup are. And it's one of those things where I, I do like your April Fool's ones for the for like the, <laughs> the tube the tube scent and you know, I, I can really feel that for, for you know the purists. But Oh yeah. I love the video because it's like, hey, this is what it does. This is what you know, if it's a t another tool that tells the Luthier what to fix. And it's not going to make a crappy luthier good. It's not going to make a, you know, a good luthier bad. It just, it's a tool. And and I love that about that kind of attitude about amps in general and guitars in general. The rabbit hole is, do you, do you think that, you know, there's so much misinformation online and there's, there's a lot of these, you know, let's call them trolls that say, oh, you know, it's, it's not a 69 Les Paul, so it's no good, all this crap. And guitar does you know the wood doesn't affect the guitar tone which we know is crap i i i seen that a lot of the videos now you know it's a lot of still a lot of snake oil in the guitar industry and it's perpetuating perpetuating sales you know like prs paul has always said he started the guitar company to make tools for for working musicians and you know, at the beginning, that's what it was. Like you go to Nashville and they won't use anything else because they the PRS guitars stayed in tune. But I think over time, it's kind of evolved into this lifestyle brand where you see brain surgeons and people people with a lot of money buying these ridiculously beautiful guitars, but they're not really using them as tools. They're using them as like furniture. So like, what's your take on that? Do you think there's just too much online now? I, I mean, I would probably argue that there's too much noise online with everything. That's fair. And you know, the best thing that the best thing that anyone can do is, you know, like you're gonna have social media, but mm. you don't have to have all of them. You know, uh, I I deleted my Twitter account uh, right at the start of the pandemic because I was like, hey, I know I am just gonna be like rage tweeting and watching people rage tweet about stuff. I don't need that in my life. I can actually live without it. But, you know, YouTube, which I guess is like a social media company as well. I like watching videos about interesting stuff. I like making videos. And like I said, it was, I had a huge upswing because everybody was stuck at home. So my kind of very minuscule cut of ad revenue went up a little bit, which was a kind of hidden benefit. But I'll answer that question in a roundabout way where this is something that pops up with a lot of my students where no matter what level they're at, it's I'll hear the, now I don't want to be a professional musician, but I would like to become a better guitar player, which I think is a longstanding attitude where it's like that there is maybe only certain roads to legitimacy if you want to self-identify as a guitar player or a musician. And I mean, the thing that, I watched the movie Coco with my wife the other day. 
which is a lovely movie and everybody should watch, especially if you like guitars, you know, because it's about the guitar. But, you know, like uh, there's a there's a great line in there where it's like, you know, one of the main characters says to the main character, it's like, oh, you play guitar? Are you a musician? And he's sort of like, ah, oh, well, he's like, no, no, come on. Like you, you play, you're a musician. This is how it is. And I think that's a reality. I think it's you don't have to just go and do gigs or you don't have to be recording music or you don't have to be writing music to consider yourself a musician. Often uh, that's just a label that we kind of stick on stuff. People who don't even play an instrument are musicians. Some of the most influential musicians on the planet can't actually operate instruments, mm. which which is totally fine. So, you know, if you're a doctor or a lawyer and, you know, you participate in the economy and you want to buy a $20,000 PRS and never play it and just stick it on your wall, go for it. You know, that's not affecting me really in any other way. So I understand where some of those, it makes sense if your guitar brand is going to cater to that market. One thing that I like about a company like PRS is their cheaper guitars are actually really good. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they found a way to, you know, they, they might manufacture some of the guitars overseas. They might use slightly different parts, but fundamentally it's a guitar you can go and do a gig with. So I think it's one of those things where, you know, it used to be that you could buy a Les Paul for a few hundred bucks and you can go and gig it for 50 years. And suddenly you have this thing that's worth a hundred thousand dollars because of lots of different things. So yeah, I don't, I don't really try to worry too much about decisions other people make about their lives and what they want to do with their money. I just, I just like to play. <laughs> I, I know what I like and what I like isn't necessarily for everybody, but I know that I like it. Um, so that's kind of more, more what I focus on as a guitar player, which rather than, and so with the channel, tying into the channel as well, I would say that that's the, if I come across as excessively positive, it's, it's hopefully not a kind of naive positivity. It's actually that like, Hey, yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff going on, but what can you control? maybe a few things about your mental state and maybe a few decisions that you get to make. So focus on those and try to optimize those. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, to, to your point, I have a, an older Zach Myers, uh, SE. Oh, that's one of the best ones. I have gigged multiple times and it's, I, I think I changed the nut to a USA nut and some locking tuners, but outside of that, it's stuck. So that's, that's been, that's been gigged quite a bit. It's got some uh, dings on it. Yeah. Well, that's funny you bring that up because my main PRS, which is a single cut that I bought in 2014 mm -hmm. in Texas, <laughs> um, uh, which is like my favorite guitar ever. You know, the, the thing that I changed on that was it didn't come with locking tuners. It's a USA made PRS, but for whatever reason on their kind of, you know, more vintage inspired instruments, they don't put the locking tuners, but I love locking tuners. So I swapped them out. So, you know, you have a guitar that I got really lucky where it was on sale because they were clearing out all the pre-2013 stuff. But, you know, with a guitar that probably listed for thousands of dollars or a guitar that doesn't list for thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. and you're going to do the same modification to it anyway. Yeah, totally. If it's not going to be too long of a story. <laughs> hey, I can't make that promise, but I'll tell it anyway. What, what was your d meeting Doug story? Ah, that was really, really interesting. So a friend of mine runs a... I guess a, an online magazine, a, a rock website, and they've done pretty well where it's, I think they've kind of met every single rock star they've ever wanted to meet in their life. And uh, they, you know, they, they do a lot of reviews and a lot of interviews and they're 
constantly busy with it. So it sort of popped up that I think it would have been around the time that they did the KXM album. So George Lynch, Doug Pinnock, Ray Luzier, awesome band, awesome album. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this would have been 2014. And they sent me a message and said, hey, I've, I've got an, you know, an interview request and a review request for this KXM album that's coming out. I know you love King's X. Do you want to, you know, write up some questions or do you want to do the phone interview with Doug? And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So I did the interview and I just got chatting to Doug and he's a wicked dude. And, you know, we were just kind of talking about music a lot. And Doug was just kind of like, oh, so obviously you play music, like you're in a band, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, well, actually we're going to be in LA in about two months. So this is just, this is just me hamming it up. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to be over there. We like King's X, you know, if you're around, you know, let me know. And he was like, yeah, yeah, cool. Sounds really good. Uh, here's my email. And I'm just thinking the whole time, like, uh, this will, yeah, yeah. He's just being nice. Uh, so then fast forward a few months and we were at our hotel in LA and I was like, we had a night off and I said to our drummer, I was like, oh, should I, you know, should I email this guy? How funny would it be to, you know, kind of hear back from him? He was like, yeah, you should do it. So I send Doug an email and he immediately gets back to me. It's like, oh, awesome. You know, you know, <laughs> welcome to America. What do you want to do? You want to hang out? You want to go and get dinner or something? And I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So he's like, cool, I'll, I'll be there in an hour. What, send me the address of your hotel. And he shows up in his big truck, you know, walks into the lobby. And, you know, one of those one of those people where you just kind of see them and you go like, ah, oh, no, no, that, yeah, you're, this is, mm-hmm. you're a rock star. Like you just have that thing, just the way you are, your, your general presence. And uh, yeah, picked us up. And I think we went and ate ribs at like, Universal Studios or something and hung out and just had story time with Uncle Doug. It was a really awesome experience to meet somebody who obviously I'd listened to a lot of their music and, you know, kind of grown up musically listening to it and to just have a, you know, just a very, Mm. very normal interaction with them where, you know, they're just, again, a person, with but a person with a lot of stories to tell. For sure, yeah. I mean, that's one thing I really appreciate about them. They every gig I've ever been to, it's always a meet and greet. Like they they will stay there until the last person comes out the building. I haven't actually managed to get into one because just because yeah right you know, the wife was sick at one gig and like we had to it, we weren't we were out of state or whatever. But I did see so two sto- two quick stories. My the, my first live gig with King's X was opening for Dream Theater and Satriani on the... Wow. Uh, it would have been the Six Degrees tour and the Strange Beautiful Music tour, if I'm not mistaken. Both excellent albums. I mean, we were right right at the back of the... Uh, it was like an outdoor venue in Boston. Absolutely blew me away from the stage. Like, the sound coming... You know, g- given that I've already... I, I think that was my first Dream Theater show and my third satriani show i think just like they coming away from that experience was just like oh my god and i got to see doug (laughs) uh sing lines in the sand with dream theater as well yeah 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 so i did get to meet ty and uh so i saw the jelly jam in boston oh awesome and i got to meet ty john myung and Rob Morgenstein, which that was the most mind-blowing show ever. But yeah, like they, he, Ty got John Myung to do a meet and greet. Yeah, wow. That's something. <laughs> at, a, at a Boston thing. That's something significant. But <laughs> let's move on to the non-quickfire question round because I know we're a bit limited on time now. What significant negative experience have you overcome and what did it teach you? 
Ooh, I like that question. That's a good one. They're, they're the questions you, you want to hear. I would, I would say that <laughs> one, we'll start with the lesson first. I think a lot of negative experiences I've really learned from have been because I've been the instigator of the negative experience. But because we're talking about music and we're talking about bands and stuff like that, one that immediately comes to mind is I would still chalk it up as one of the best tours we've done uh, very nearly didn't happen because we had the classic dodgy booking agent where, you know, yeah, yeah, we've booked you 30 shows in the States and we got about three shows in and turns out none of the venues even knew who we were or where we were meant to be and never heard back from the agent. And yeah, we, we had this situation where it's like, well, do we just kind of not do anything and do we just fly home? It's pretty terrifying to be spend all this time and effort and money to get yourself somewhere and you're just looking at like 10 weeks of nothing in another country. You don't know where you're meant to stay. You don't know really anything about what you possibly could do. And it was literally just like the kind of three of us in the band. We, we had a van that we had hired and we had some gear. And yeah, that was terrifying for a couple of days because we were seriously considering just you know, packing in, coming home. And that probably would have been the, the end of going to the States and touring. But we decided that given we might never get that opportunity again, we just started calling and cold calling a lot of venues and calling everyone we knew that we had ever met over there to, to just see if they could help out. You know, it's like, hey, here's the story. We had shows booked. We had them pulled. We're from Australia. We're in America. Do you reckon you could help? If you can't help, could you pass us on to somebody else? So that's something that when it initially happened, we were all really down about and pretty bitter about. But the, I think the thing that we learned from it was it's like, yeah, there is absolutely no opportunity cost in asking for help. Mm -hmm. And this applies to, this applies to so much stuff outside of, you know, the band and music and something that I really try to apply all the time to a lot of different things, whether... <laughs> you know, whether I'm trying to buy a pair of shoes and I can't make up my mind. And so I can just talk to the person behind the desk and say, hey, could you maybe give me a hand? Which a lot of the time now, you know, especially in Australia, it's like attendants seem to just kind of leave you alone. And you have that, you have that experience of like, oh, maybe I can go to the shop and I can buy something. I just have to say, hi, where do I scan my card? But yeah, it's, it's, it very much just boils down to that, you know, like if the opportunity cost is zero, mm -hmm. take the opportunity. Fantastic. What major positive experience has given you the push to follow this journey? <sighs> Again, probably just, just people. <laughs> I think I'm somebody who naturally likes to focus on like being grateful about positive experiences that you've had. So I, I, you know, I, I do, I don't like to dwell on, negative experiences, but I do like to remember them and try to try to get driven by them or try to learn from them. Because if you learn from your negative experiences, you might have some more positive experiences. So yeah, uh, one, of, one of the goals that I had, I think when I left uni and started playing music that I would love to tour, whatever that means. And I would love to record some of my own songs with my friends in the band and uh, I consider just you know having having had the opportunity to do that at least once a massively positive experience and 
then to have that happen in a somewhat haphazard yet sustainable fashion has been kind of icing on the cake. Fantastic. Last question is what does music mean to you? <sighs> Life. In a, in a lot of different ways. It's obviously something that I dedicate a lot of my time to, but I'll qualify this by saying that I'm uh, in no way qualified to talk about uh, the specifics of this, but there is something in that I really, really like the idea of, and when I first read about it, that in several Indigenous Australian cultures, you know, there's there's this idea of it's like a rite of passage. So I'm sure I'm sure a lot of casual listeners, if they don't know much about Australia, they know about the outback and they know about walkabout. But it essentially is in a lot of Indigenous cultures, there are these things called songlines. Mm. And you could think of a songline as like a, uh, like a ritual journey that somebody has to undertake in a particular part of their life. I'm probably massively misrepresenting this. But one thing that stuck with me is, you know, they're called a songline because you, you go and you, you, you go out and you walk and you follow these predetermined locations. But the way you remember how to navigate is via verse and via song. And these songs are tied to the pace of walking. And the, the idea is that you have to go out into the world and you have to sing the world back into being. You have to sing the world back into being regenerated. So it's, it's like a, it's a lot of things. It's a rite of passage. It's a creation story. It's, you know, singing, <laughs> it's, it's doing all these kind of things. Mm. So I, I, I really, really like that idea that of music being so fundamental to kind of our understanding of the world. And there's a lot of, I think, speculation that, you know, humans could probably sing. We probably started singing before we started talking. So singing is like really embedded, mm. embedded in the, in the roots of language. And, you know, you often hear the thing that music is a universal language. But I don't really think it's a universal language because you have a lot of things in, you know, formalized music, which are not universal across cultures. But I would probably make the argument that like singing is fundamental to some of the languages that we use that we consider universal. So, yeah, I like to think that's 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 one way I really like to think about music. And yeah, outside of that, it's, you know, it's just a nice thing. It's a nice way to spend your limited time on Earth. Absolutely. That's that's great. Thank you so much. So if people want to get in touch, listen to your music, check out your YouTube channel, where do they go? Well, I guess if you want to check out some of the some of the YouTube channel, you can you can go to YouTube, you can look for me, Leon Todd. And I'm on all the social media platforms as Leon Todd. The best place if you wanted to listen to some ragdoll music or purchase some ragdoll music or purchase some of our merch is our bandcamp store, which is ragdollrock.bandcamp.com. We're also all over the social media channels. So yeah, if you give it a listen and you hear something that you like, either either write to me. Probably Instagram is probably the place I can actually, you know, respond to you the easiest. I also have a Discord server as well. Uh, again, which is just Leon Todd. That's been a really nice thing that's kind of built up quite organically. But yeah, I, I love to hear from people wherever they are. And, you know, if they kind of feel touched by music in the same way that I do. I always like chatting to them. Cool. All right. And then at the end of the episode, I, I do like to play a track by the uh, artist I'm talking to. So uh, what song can we play? What would be a good one? Uh, maybe we'll do one of the more recent singles that we release. We'll do one called Rust. All right. Well, this has been um, absolute pleasure. Really appreciate you taking the time. Likewise, mate. Great set of questions. Thank you. So please, yeah, stay in touch and uh, 
talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, as this really helps get the word out about the podcast, so other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing. The more the musicians' community collectively learns, the stronger we will become. A rising tide lifts all ships. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering a full range of apparel decoration and promotional items, such as screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and much more. The Skinny Armadillo is now offering a merch fulfillment service, including on-demand printing and a custom-built web store, so you can concentrate on your music and running your business as a musician. Visit theskinnyarmadillo.com or call 817-546-1430 to learn how the Skinny Armadillo can help you take your merch to the next level. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Ragdoll with Rust. Rust.